this is a, a wonderful time to be an animal scientist. This is, you know, there's so much opportunity. We can have such amazing impact on food production now. Um, kind of, this is a wonderful time. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Berg & Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. Adiseo USA, producers of Amine M and MilkPay.com. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM Furminish, mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furminish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. I'm your host for today, Gail Carpenter, State Dairy Extension Specialist at Iowa State University. And I'm joined today, actually, by one of my fellow hosts, uh, Joe McFadden. And Joe's taking the other side of the microphone today uh, to talk a little bit about his work. Joe's an associate professor of dairy cattle biology at Cornell University. And uh, Joe, I was I was reading through your LinkedIn, and I I think we applied for the same job. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then I was reading through and looking at all of your other background that you have. And now I was fresh out of a PhD when I applied. And so I don't feel quite as bad anymore. Um, <laughs> you spent some time at John Hopkins at the uh, as a postdoc and a visiting scientist. Uh, you were at West Virginia University for a little while, finished your PhD at Virginia Tech in 2009, it looks like. So, so what brought you to Cornell and what have you been working on since you got there? Uh, well, you know, it all starts with like an email, how these things all, all get you know, get started. And in reality, I, I guess I never anticipated coming back to where it all started, let alone the exact office uh, where it started in undergrad. So it's been, that was a bit surreal. But, you know, I think the reason why is, well, I'm from New York. My, my, my wife is from New York and uh, um, we're obviously um, want to just get closer to home. At the same time, uh, you know, Cornell provides a lot of opportunity in, in the dairy nutrition space. And, uh, you know, when I first got started here, it was sort of what we were traditionally known for. That's nutritional physiology and looking at the role of uh, glucose utilization in the cow. And, yeah, I don't know. But then you get tenure and you say, yeah, let's just uh, shake it up a bit. And uh, that's what we did. And so we, uh, the lab now is gone almost a completely different direction, uh, focusing predominantly on uh, methane emissions and and, and then we move towards the future a lot more on energetics. And so I'm looking forward to see how it evolves. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. They provide high quality economical feed ingredients for ruminants, like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. So how'd you switch from the glucose space to the, to the methane space or the emission space? You know, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a wild ride. I'll tell you that for the last three years, because yeah, I went from zero, I went from zero to a hundred in this methane space. Like I didn't have, you know, I, I guess I was looking around at my, my 
sort of environment here at Cornell. And I think Cornell has been historically known for contributing to the efficiency space, but we really didn't have any expertise in the methane mitigation space uh, from, a, from a direct methane mitigation perspective. And uh, at the same time, um, how this really all started was, I think my admins realized pretty quickly that uh, I have a, we all have a bit of a knack for grant writing, but uh, uh, they said, like, go after this equipment grant. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do that or not. And uh, I did, and I didn't get it. Um, and But that sort of set the seed for, um, you know, I really wanted a respiration chamber system. I really wanted to study energetics. I thought that was something that we could we could you know bring back and and uh, at the same time um, um, we didn't have one. We didn't have that unit. So with thanks with some seed funding um, from some corporations in the state of New York, we we just pulled that off and um, yeah, that sort of kickstarted it. And then I just started studying and I was like. You know, for those that know me, I, I love mechanisms. I like like figuring out how things work. And, you know, that was the whole story around glucose use. I really want to understand insulin resistance. And you know, when it comes to the methane story and when it comes to all these additives in this space, there's a lot of them. We just don't know how things work. And um, for me, that was uh, a bit a bit of a concern and a bit of a challenge. And I thought maybe that's where I could potentially contribute. That's yeah, that's kind of that's kind of a fun plot twist. Yeah, yeah. I was reading. It kind of made me chuckle a little bit. Uh, yeah. We ask our guests to to indicate some topics that they want to share, yeah. and you put fat sustainability, gut digestion, health, enteric methane, and India dairy. And <laughs> intuitively, those don't all feel like they belong with each other. <laughs> do, they, do they fit together? Oh, they do. They do. They so much do. And uh, you know, I think that's what I try to teach my graduate students. Uh, and postdocs in the lab, it's that, you know, I think in our field, we, te- we tend to, um, you know, really focus in on our expertise. Like you can say, oh, that, that person there is a lipid biologist or that person, you know, that person studies the gut, you know, that's what they're known for. Um, but, you know, I'd like to think that we're all animal scientists, which we are, um, and the animal is a system. And so these things all relate to each other. And so I don't know. I, you know, I love just learning. I love studying different uh, aspects of, of animal science, and um, it all sort of relates to each other. And I think the more we know about that interaction, I think the more um, the more likely we're we are to develop solutions that really impact the whole system beneficially. So, yeah, when I look at that list of list of terms there, obviously I'm a lipid biologist. That's how I got my training, and I still do a ton of fatty acid work now, uh, but. It certainly relates to methane emissions. There's a there's a topic we can get in there in terms of fatty acids, and and on the India side, you know, I never imagined in, in my um, wildest dreams that I'd be developing a lab that would have a strong presence in India. Um, and that just sort of came out through the interactions with various NGOs, and and there's a lot of opportunity in the space to improve uh, cattle and buffalo nutrition in that region of the world, and and so yeah. We're, we're just sort of going where, where we need to go <laughs> based on demand. Well, can you tell me a little bit more about that program? How did you get connected out there? What have you guys been working on? What's the impact that you're having? Yeah, really well, simple questions, right? Yeah, no, no, really simple, but it's, not, it's, it's probably going to be, you know, if I were to flash forward three decades from now, you know, think of, hey, do I retire? They're like, no, I'll wait another decade. Like in that period of my life, I'm going to look back and say, to say you know, what was like the biggest challenge of, of my of my program, and I think this is going to be it. Um, it there's 300 million cattle and buffalo um, in India, 
It has managed by over 75 million smallholder farmers. Um, milk production per animal is, is quite low. Um, and so methane intensity um, is quite high um, per unit of milk. So the question is, you know, what are they already doing? And, and that was sort of where I was a bit naive, to be honest, uh, going into this project, not really knowing, you know, what their system is and, and where they're leading uh, in this space. But then, you know, there's several NGOs. So the Environmental Defense Fund and Global Methane Hub are two NGOs that I've, I've been able to uh, interact with and uh, support this effort. And so we're really at a pivotal point because it took about a year and a half of real planning to find strategic partners. And many of these agreements are, are, are unfolding at this very moment. Um, but I can I feel confident in saying that we, we're really focused on two regions of India, um, Haryana and Maharashtra, so sort of northern and middle India. And uh, there are some really key partners in this in this region of, of India that really could help sort of with our with the main objective, which is to help build an advanced feed library uh, for the country of India. And this is an immense challenge that it will probably take a lifetime for anybody to want to try to try to achieve. Um, there's hundreds of different types of ingredients that are really unique to the India dairy production system, and, and we also know. You know, when I had several chances now to, to visit these different regions of India, um, how they feed cows can vary within a village. It can vary across the country. And so how do we incorporate ration balancing in this this region of the world is is something they're already thinking about. The, the National Dairy Development Board has developed a ration balancing program. Um, they, they basically develop diets on the basis of total digestible nutrients, crude protein, calcium, and phosphorus. That, that is it. Um, and so... They also really don't have a feed library to go much more beyond that. And so that's where we think we could potentially contribute. So we're hiring a team of postdocs here, plan on hiring staff on the ground um, in India uh, to help facilitate an extensive sample collection over the next three years. The goal is to send probably, uh, we're sort of estimating between six and 8,000 feed samples uh, to Cumberland Valley um, uh, to form a complete analysis, um, nutrient uh, analysis of these feeds, uh, work with the International Livestock Research Institute, as well as Cumberland Valley, uh, to develop NIR capabilities in the country, and also provide opportunities for scientists in India to receive uh, the, the, the appropriate laboratory training that they require to develop these methodologies in the country itself. Um, really, by year three, we want to be able to make sure that the laboratory capabilities of India are, are self-sufficient in this area and then and work with uh, different government and, and NGO groups in India to imagine what is version 2.0 of their ration balancing program. What, where do we go next and, and with incremental gains? We realize that we're not going to get CNCPS version 7.0. Like we, I don't even have access to that yet. <laughs> but, yeah. When are we going to get access to that? They've been saying that for a while. <laughs> we should just go over and knock on Mike's door and put yeah. pressure on him here. No, I, I get, I get yeah, we have, it's coming. But um, what I'll say is, is that um, this has been a, a really joy for, for me personally, this, this project in India, because I learn, I'm learning so much. I, I and they're doing great things already. And um, I just hope that I, I can meet up, meet their expectations over the next couple of years. So after India, then what? Do you have other countries that you think? This is, I mean, this is ambitious. Um, so yeah. I think any good scientist would say, um, 
you have to focus at some point. And yeah, right. having a, I, I can be, uh, you know, I can certainly have wide interests personally, but I'm really going to need to focus on India. So I will say that I have other colleagues participating in this. And so um, I work solely here with the Environmental Defense Fund in Haryana, with the likely be the National Dairy Research Institute in Karnal. But in, in um, the rest of the project, we're partnering with Ermes Kebriab at UC Davis. He's a project lead, and he's focused on other countries in South Asia, um, like Vietnam. And, you know, there's certainly an interest to expand across South Asia and into Africa. Uh, I think we have to really demonstrate that we can meet our objectives here. Um, you know, working in a different country, you are completely reliant on the people in that country, right, to, to make sure that uh, you succeed. And that's a lesson in patience. That's a lesson, a lesson in, in good communication. Um, and it, you have to work hard at it. You have to work constantly at it um, because in the end, it, there are the people of India, people of any of these countries, they're the ones who are going to solve it. It's not going to be Joe McFadden. So um, we have to uh, – um, it's going to take some time. That's all I'm trying to say. And um, we want to be uh, – you know, I look at a smallholder production system. You'd be hard-pressed, in my opinion, to find something that um, is well-organized and, and thought through as the production system of India. So I, I guess I'm very privileged to work there first. Well, that's very cool. I want to take a step back mm -hmm. uh, to something else you talked about, which is uh, you are a lipid biologist. You're, yeah. You started out with, the, with, with fatty acids, and you said you're still doing fatty acids work. How are you marrying uh, your passion for lipids and your mm – -hmm your new research in, in methane and sustainability. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, uh, people have heard me this. If, if anybody's heard me talk recently, they've probably heard me say this again. But, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, fats and lipids, you know, when you look at the methane literature, you typically see something in the title, you know, the effects of fats on, on emissions, the effects of fat feeding on emissions, methane emissions. And, and I say to myself, and I just said this at a, at a meeting in Idaho, and I was like, what did we learn? Like, we learned that fatty acids themselves are very unique, right? When it comes to um, how nutrients are used by the animal in terms of nutrient partitioning, we learned that their digestibility is quite unique. But yet, we still generalize fats when it comes to enteric methane mitigation. And we, we, we tend to put ourselves into these things where it just feels comfortable. But the reality is, there's a lot of unknowns regarding lipids um, and specific fatty acids. Could certainly have a very unique difference when it comes to um, a methane emissions. Um, so, for instance, oils, uh, we're talking unsaturated fatty acids could have a, a stark reductions in methane production. And I'm really thinking about medium chain fatty acids um, that are unsaturated, uh, but sorry, medium chain fatty acids and unsaturated fatty acids like, um, like linoleic acid or uh, linoleic. Um, Whereas saturated fatty acids are really going to do a, hopefully a nice job of decreasing methane intensity because they do a good job increasing energy corrected milk production. And even though they might not have a, an impact on methane production grams per day in the rumen, um, they're going to be able to produce more energy corrected milk. So what, what I'm arguing is, is that we have to think about um, individual fatty acids and how they influence production yield and intensity uh, of methane because they probably do so very uniquely. And then the next question is, how do you use fatty acid feeding as a way to complement other, you know, feed additives that directly inhibit methane production? So, for instance, seaweed, bromoform, 
uh, 300p, things like that. And so we're very excited that, um, you know, with some private foundation um, support, uh, Kirsten Philanthropies um, from Danone and from the state of California, we have a sizable award now to study the effects of individual fatty acids and their impacts on emissions, but also how fatty acids interact with um, dietary um, Asparagopsis taxiformis or bromoform um, feeding. And obviously, all of these studies um, uh, are going to serve, serve us well when we want to think about energy use. And so we're very happy to announce that um, our respiration chamber system is open for business. <laughs> if you don't, for people that know me, um, this has been like a three-year process, um, major renovations of facilities and installations. But um, this is the first studies that are going to go through uh, the respiration chamber system. Are your chambers going to have any downtime for the next five years or are they pretty, pretty booked up? <laughs> well, you know, um, I think there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of excitement and, you know, the, um, the, and I think we thought a lot internally here about, you know, making sure that, um, you know, we, 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 we push forward the best possible science, which is, I think is any institution does that. Um, but um, yeah, it's going to, I would say 2025 is looking pretty full already. And um, uh, because I was sort of delaying everybody, 2024, we've got a little space in there. But um, yeah, I'm sure that will fill right up real quick. So do you have cows in there right now? Have you done the, are you in the process of the first study? Well, no, or? we're just, I'm getting trained this week. I'm getting trained. Oh, wow. Them. Um, so I think it's tomorrow or it's Thursday. I have to look at my calendar, but um, goal is for the, our entire crew to, to get trained. I, I hired a research associate to run them. And um, there's four of these units, uh, climate-controlled, um, methane, CO2, hydrogen, um, oxygen, and we're adding – and phase two will be ammonia and nitrous oxide. They're, we're just going to take a little longer to get those analyzers in there, but they're coming. So and really hot off the press. Yeah, yeah. So the um, – and, you know, the, the first study we're doing is a respiration chamber system uh, by Greenfeed Protocol. Um, sort of experiment. Um, there's been some studies. Uh, there's a lot of, obviously, green feed is something that everybody talks about in the space. We have green feeds. Um, we use them here, and I'm actually we'll have two. I'll be sending to India for our efforts in India. Um, quite possibly, be, will be the first green feeds in India. And the uh, in that um, in that in their use, we, we've learned that we've got some just some questions about um, you know how accurate green feed is, is under different production scenarios, different protocols of use. So we, um, you know, we also have a protocol for using green feeds our own, on our own dairy. And the goal is to sort of test that protocol versus a, versus a chamber system and, and see what we learn. I had a postdoc, Dr. Fontora, who did a, a meta-analysis that will hopefully be accepted for a presentation to ADSA this year, the annual meeting, and where she worked with data sets. Uh, with green feed and, and chamber data in the same study. Um, and uh, there's, so there's some questions about agreement. And um, so we just want to just continue to probe that a bit more. So, but you use green feeds right now. So the green feeds are still useful. They're giving, they're giving useful data then. Yeah. So when it comes to green feed, you know, when I publish something, we have, you know, our first papers are in review um, on the methane space and, you know, we're calling it relative efficacy until I until I learn more. Um, perhaps there might need to be some correction factors we're thinking about um, uh, to 
be more you know absolute in our in our measurement. Um, but the um, yeah, we obviously use and we we have three currently at our dairy. We're probably going to get a fourth one here, and um, and then um, obviously the, the ones in India we'll be using. So the um, you know they're nice because they get you a lot of data every day, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you know, but you know, whether using a tie stall and free stall, I think the answers could be slightly different. And then you, there's a lot of pros and cons with, with using them, just like with any tool. Even, you know, Chambers got a lot of cons. So mm -hmm. I'm not I'm oblivious to that. So, um, but there's also a lot of other methane sensors that are in the space that are emerging. I, if I could tell, if I had a guess in the number of startups that I've spoken to in the last year, uh, it would be a triple digit number. And I feel like in the enteric methane mitigation monitoring space, it's, 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 it's insane. But, um, you know, the goal is to get to a lower cost methane sensor. The green feed's not going to be the solution. Uh, um, and I'm, I'm sure Seelock's not a big fan of me saying that, but um, there's going to have to be something that's going to be lower cost, more high throughput. Um, to really to, to speed this up a bit. Yeah, I think that's I, I something I think about a lot is the challenges of collecting that data and making making sure it's good data because this is an important topic. And I it's good to hear you say that, you know, there's still a lot of value to that data because sometimes I wonder what's going to happen if we get too many studies and realize that that it's all junk or something, you know, like because um, not all of us can afford respiration chambers. Uh, yeah. And and even you're saying it took you a while to get them up and going. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the space in the next few years, because it's definitely something that's important that we want to be able to get better data on. Um so and one, and one thing I'm seeing is, is that, you know, you have data, I have data, we all have data. Um, and I don't know, I know there's some efforts I, I heard of trying to organize data across labs. And, you know, we've had a discussion last week about, we have a lot of data we're regenerating from all these different studies. And we just doctor, we just hired Dr. Neil Hostens. And, um, you know, he's a data analytics guy, right? And he's like, well, he's going to be using, he could have access to all of our data and, and I'm like, well, how do we organize data, right? And how do we, and how can we do this across labs? And because there's this whole space in data science now that people could really benefit from our studies. That are, you know, all of our studies are expensive in any institution. Uh, we could probably do a better job, and I really need some efforts in this space. Yeah, I've been. I remember my PhD advisor saying stuff like that not too <laughs> a few years ago now, and we're still figuring it out. <laughs> no, 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 like a, I don't know. It's like the way, so it's, you know, I really wish there was some finding opportunities that were really about that. We're about like, you know, organizing data across labs, using data across labs. I don't know. There's really, those things are sometimes hard to find. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, maybe Mail can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So you, you talked about fatty acids a bit. And one of the other things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, what are the broader impacts of these these strategies that we use to inhibit enteric methane? So an easy example of that might be seaweed, right? And seaweed has the, you know, the harvesting, the transport, the processing, all of that has its own um, own footprint, right? And so I think when we're looking at the footprint of technologies like that, um, we need to look more broadly right at what the whole system is and not just what the impact on the cow is because it's great if it reduces enteric methane but if if we're you know having to truck everything from california to iowa um for the long term that's that's gonna 
that's going to have its own share of, of issues, right? The other one that I I kind of think about sometimes is you mentioned the uh, the saturated fats as um, a way to increase uh, in t- in t- or decrease methane intensity. Um, and palm fat sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap for maybe not being um, yep. the greenest uh, or most sustainable uh, harvesting method. So do you, mm-hmm. do you think about that? What do you, there's no easy answers to this, but do you, uh, do you have any answers to some of these questions? Yeah. You know, so yeah, I want, for instance, over in India, I hear that, oh, they're thinking about incorporating more, more palm, right? Well, that's a, not an expensive endeavor, but, um, and there's a lot of questions about, its its production and its impact on the environment and you know I certainly rely a lot of those in this space to um, you know provide me confidence that these things are, are that they're being considered and I know there's some sort of sustainable palm pack or something that, that some of these, these countries really all want to make sure that they're not expanding their sort of their their carbon footprint in this space or negatively impacting the environment any any worse than they currently are but um, you know I, I think when it comes to fats, you know, one of the things we've got to keep in mind, that there, there's a limit to this, right? There, there's a limit to how much fat you can add. And so we, this is something that just can't grow out to exorbitant proportions because, you know, typical diets, at least in North American diets, you know, five, five and a half, six percent total fat. And not all, not all that's coming from palmitic. So I think we got to be a, a little bit, a little bit careful there. Um, I think I think this also gives us an opportunity too to think a little bit more about you know steric acid for example and how we could potentially influence um, you know biohydrogenation just leverage sort of other fats that are in the diet to to influence intensity and you know this isn't this is not a new topic um, um, steric acid feeding has been a discussion for decades but the um, it's not, certainly uh, when you talked about like what other things are these additives doing, um, you know, like you're talking about seaweed and you know, seaweed is a great example too, where um, and there's a lot of excitement on this. I'm not going to question that, but the drops in intake are something you would see at a high fat feeding level, or you might see also with seaweed and bromoform feeding that's quite consistent. Now there's iodoform. Um, you can actually see drops in intake on that as well. And I really like to see, you know, obviously there's a known mechanisms of action for how these halogens decrease methane production, but drops in intake themselves also can contribute to to drops in methane production. Um, obviously, drops in milk yield too are also observed. And so, what I've learned by talking to a lot of these companies, so I've talked to uh, Future Feeds, Ambrosia, Ruminate, um, a couple others uh, in this space, um, Algo Biosciences, but the is that there's really a, a question about stability when it comes to these compounds. And so one of the things we often ignore is, uh, and then we need to think more about is, you know, the shelf life of these things. So how is it going to be used out in the field? And the scientists will be like, oh, I got something out of the freezer. I'm going to open it up. I'm going to put it in. I know exactly where it was. I know how it was stored. I know all these conditions. But heck, even at our farm, sometimes this can be a bit of the Wild West. And so we have to um, really study that aspect of the science. And so this California project that we have, um, it, with, with the state of California, it's going to investigate these products, these different, these different technologies from these different companies side by side. And this is where I think it's an exciting area of the science right now is that, you know, we're going to put these, these, these techs um, side by side. We're going to see who wins, like kind of thing. We want to make sure that we have safe and effective technologies. 
And it's up to us as scientists to make sure that, and I've been saying this on social media a bit lately, we're the gatekeepers right, for these solutions, that it comes down to us. And so we're going to probe the stability issue quite extensively um, and look at the intake and help develop so what we think is an appropriate feeding strategy in one X feeding level. Because as you, as you start to think about product registration, getting things approved for use, you really need to start thinking about what is that target, target dose. And so, all right, let me just talk in here, but um, the last sort of comment I have is about, you know, what other impacts these things could have. And right now, um, you, the argument is efficiency. Well, potentially that efficiency is at the cost of intake. And so we've got, we, we, we got to, we got to question it a bit. Um, not, there's not a lot of studies that have looked at these these um, studies in animals that with transition cows or lactation cows where drops in intake are not necessarily a favorable thing. And so we also need to make sure that to understand where the energy is going. Where, 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 how is the hydrogen being used? And they know that a lot of the hydrogen is being emitted. And you know, there was a recent study looking at iodoform that saw stark reductions in methane production and they were able to estimate like 40% of the hydrogen, roughly half, I forget the exact number, was actually retained by the other by the animal and the other half was emitted. Well, this really opens up the opportunity for uh, feed additive manufacturers to think about, you know, what do I, you know, what do we use as a co-supplementation strategy to sort of optimize hydrogen use? And so, you know, I see some opportunity evolving there in that 3NOP monensin space. Um, obviously, Menensen um, helping improving efficiency, and um, there's also you know biohydrogenation itself relative to propionate as a as a, a minor hydrogen sink, but that has also been considered. Uh, there were some studies looking at canola oil feeding, for example. So I think that's where it's getting really exciting, and 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 making sure that these outcomes are long, they last a long time, and and there's a bit of concern that. The cow is potentially adapting to these additives, but I, I express caution because is it adaptation? Is it microbial adaptation, which is quite possible, quite likely? Um, but it, it also could be a stability issue that maybe we don't thoroughly document uh, when it comes to these additives. So this, if we're not going to hold you to this or anything, right? But if you if you put on your uh, hopped in your time machine and went forward fifty years or or even 20 years. What do you think it's going to look like for the dairy industry to be climate neutral? Um, yeah, um, it's going to take some time. There was a at the um, a chance to speak at that uh, feed summit meeting at UC Davis last year, and there was a question about, you know, what do you think you're, how are we going to, like, are we going to get to this goal of 30, 40% reduction by 2030? And if not, like, what do you think this percent reduction looks like? We all went through the whole panel. Like we all just shouted out a bunch of random numbers. And if I had to give you an average, it was like ten percent. <laughs> um, the reality is, is that where is that question being focused on? You know, is it is that question for an individual farm? Is it for the state? Is it for the region? For the country? For the world? Right? And for the world, that's where I think we need to be thinking because you know, once the methane is emitted, that methane just doesn't recognize any country's borders. And um, my my concern here is is that we get too focused. Um, on our individual, um, and I get it, we got to, we're a country, this is what we got to do, we got to focus our own agenda, we get it, but at the same time, it's one planet kind of concept, and um, U.S., European countries are most likely going to have to get to that place faster, most much faster than these other countries, because they're also going to help compensate for countries that 
can't necessarily meet that agenda. So um, it puts more pressure on us to make sure that our mitigation strategies are robust and um, that we're, we're aiming high kind of thing because there's a lot of pressure on us to, to, to do this better than most can do it. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, yeah, hopefully that it's going to take some time. Um, you know, in terms of the technologies themselves, and this, I thought that you were going to ask this question about what do I think is going to be the, the, the winning solution? There's no winning solution here. Mm-hmm. No individual solution. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement around getting beyond 50%. I, I don't get a lot of excitement. I don't get like, I don't wake up in the morning and say to myself, oh, I'm going to go study a room and modifier that um, it decreases emissions like 5% or something. I don't get really excited by that. It's not to say it doesn't have a role. Joe McFadden doesn't get excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay? This is Joe McFadden does not get excited by room and modifiers. Um, it's fine. It's, 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 it's my issue to contend with. It's but, different things for different people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get excited about fatty acids. Yeah, exactly. Not everybody's as passionate about palmitic and ceramide as I am. Uh, I get it. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, you know, we gotta have, we gotta aim high for some of these things. And so, uh, um, and I, I still think they have a role. So what I'm trying to say is, is that there, there is a role for grooming modifiers in, in this methane mitigation space. Um, I think co-supplementation is getting a lot of excitement and, and probably can get to these robust reductions beyond 50% with something like a, a room modifier added. Um, those are the essential oils of the world, that kind of thing. Um, but um, you know, we need time and research and money for all these things. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about like the future and what the future looks like and, and thinking about kind of some of these big picture things moving forward. On an individual level, what can we be doing right now um, to help us be more, to help us make those first steps in the right direction? What I've learned from um, this California Department of, of Food and Agriculture proposal was that, you know, as scientists, we tend to think about our region, right? And so in the Northeast, I feed Northeast diets, right? These are going to be, because compared to California, they're higher forage diets, less byproducts. Um, and then, but in this CDFA proposal, I have to start feeding in these studies California diets. So we're feeding, we'll be feeding low forage diets. Lots of byproducts. Get almond hulls over here. Might be the first time we ever fed almond hulls at Cornell. Who knows? Um, but the thought process there is that um, one, we have to at least as a, as a scientific community, we have to realize that the solutions that we when we might push forward um, might only be suitable or work well in on our production system. So forage level, fiber digestibility, fat levels. You know, depending on the nutrient. These additives are very likely to work different, uh, and they've already shown that with 3NOP, that um, NDF level and, um, and lipid level influences the 3NOP response, right? And so when you look at something like essential oils, a lot of the work on essential oils was done on diets with 70% fiber, um, 70%, 70% forage diets, 60-70% forage diets, and not necessarily North American diets. And so we, we just have to be, express a little caution there. I think on farm, I think what we were sort of excited about was that, one, we have to um, think about what we currently can do. And, and fatty acids in the space provide some sort of assurance that maybe we could get to that 20, 30% reduction with something like fatty acids, which are already approved. And that's just why we needed a little more focus in on that, because it's something we can do today. Um, we also think that 
you know, the one thing that's really hurting us to get to is that that approval process. And I'm not the person to talk about this, but, you know, how do you get additives approved faster? There's something that needs to happen ASAP is to think about how we can sort of speed up that process a bit. And there's a lot of people thinking about this from in the NGO space. And I know there's even legislation now um, looking at how to, how to speed this up. Um, I think that's going to be super critical uh, to get us to a space where we have actual methane mitigators that have a definitive claim. 3NOP is going to come around. It's, I'm uh, pretty confident that, you know, I was told, I thought it was going to happen much faster, but, you know, these things come come and go. And, and they're going to, that 3NOP in this space was something that we'll probably be able to do here in the short term. I'm very hopeful of that. Or Beauvais, for those that don't know what I'm talking about. All right. And one last question, kind of unrelated before we move uh, to the end. Yep. You mentioned way at the beginning, you said you have a knack for grant writing. What are your grant writing? What are your favorite grant writing tips? Oh, wow. Uh, I wish I had a whole thing to talk about this. I actually love grant writing. <laughs> people, people probably hate it. Uh, I don't know. I just love it. I, I, I love it. And then it's always, I was trained by, and I give him credit. His name was Dr. Brad Hillgardner. So when I was at West Virginia, I wrote my first USDA grant. Horrible. Okay. Absolutely horrible. And I was like, well, you know, you go, go get some advice. And I went to some colleagues and I came back with a word scratched out, you know, and um, I was like, oh, man, I must have did a good job. And then I was like, well, Brad Hillgarden, this guy got like a, I don't know what it was, many USD grants over the years. I said, like, let me go over to biomedicine and let him look at it. He came back and he said, you were obviously never trained in grantsmanship. <laughs> this is like the first grant I've ever read. Uh, and I was like, okay. Um, and he worked through it with me over the holidays. It was over Christmas, I remember. He came to my office on New Year's. Like, this is a guy that just went above and beyond. And he obliterated. But in that process, I definitely learned how to write grants from him. And it came, you know, so my first piece of advice for, for young faculty is to find some way that it's going to rip apart your grant to shreds. Uh, and, and so you um, just be, be better at it. And the next part is, um, you know, make sure that you're a good storyteller. You know, we had a professional development workshop for grad students last week. And the speaker said the same thing, that grant writing is a process in storytelling. Um, and, you know, you have to... You have to convince people that your your story is worth studying, worth investing, and it comes down to strong scientific justification, clear thought, a bit you know, uh, uh, um, organized logic, and um, making sure that um, you know be a little bit repetitive at times too, because people read these things one time. Uh, the more repetitive you can be, this actually can help you to a degree, and, and don't be overly ambitious. All right. Well, maybe we'll have to have you come back then to uh, do another episode just on grant writing. Oh, okay. All right. Looking forward to it. Um, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> any last thoughts before we move into our, our three questions that all our hosts get? Um, like, any, any last thoughts? Well, I got to get ready for class here. I teach <laughs> uh, nutritional physiology um, and, and biochemistry here. Um, and so I have to get my notes ready for that. But uh no, I think this is an exciting time to, to be an animal scientist. I When I was in grad school, there was all this drama about, oh, there's not going to be any more funding and, you know, um, you know, what's left of animal science. I don't know. There was a bit of that going around in, in the graduate student field. And, and I am pleasantly pleased that that is not the case. Like, this is a, a wonderful time to be an animal scientist. This is, you know, there's so much opportunity. We can have such amazing impact on food production now, um, kind of, this is a wonderful time. And you might say to yourself, well, I don't want to study methane. You know what? Well, sometimes 
you're just going to have to bend a little because you can study methane, but you can still study energetics. You can still study digestion. Like you can, you know, methane is again, one part of the system bringing this full circle that it's not the, the one all be all kind of scenario. So, you know, just be adaptable. Good advice. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We're sciencing the global food challenge. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Exelite, a novel product for management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Smacks Tech. Get insights from inside your cows with Smacks Tech for higher herd health and profitability. Adaseo, a global leader in nutritional solutions and the provider of Smartamine Hen, the best in class rumen protected methionine product for dairy producers who want to optimize milk production, capture more value from their components, and maintain their lifetime performance of their herds. For more product information and to calculate your return on investment when you balance your feed with amino acids, go to milkpay.com. And I think that's a good segue into our three questions that we ask all of our guests. Okay. The first one being, as you know, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Oh, favorite dairy or book or related resource. Um, you know, I'm looking at the Mason right now. I'm not sure that would be it. Um, <laughs> you know, I think... Um, I think what I'm going to say is my favorite thing to read, or this just sounds also absolutely insane, but uh, dissertations. <laughs> I love reading the cutting edge. You know, you know, most advisors that have to read dissertations over and over and over, I get it. Uh, it can be a it can be a process. But uh, that said, I like looking at the most cutting edge stuff. I get so excited about seeing what other people are doing, um, and I think we got to do a better job of doing that. I, I know there's been a lot of seminars now. I think I think Iowa does this where they post some of the seminars that are happening at their university for others to enjoy. Um, I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more acknowledgement of of what we're doing well from like me telling you, hey, you're doing a great job in this space. You know, we, we tend to acknowledge each other within our university systems, but, um, you know, or we, we have to have some sort of formal award. But I think... You know, when it comes to social media, it's a really powerful tool to do this. That if I, if I see a new student who just graduated and I have a chance to listen to their talk or even read their dissertation, I certainly want to let them know that they're doing a one, you know, good job and it's exciting science. So, yeah, new you know, dissertations and theses, it sounds absurd, I know, but that's probably what I like to do. <laughs> nice. So what is your favorite non-dairy related book or resource? Okay. Um, well, I am, so I am a big, I love, like I said, learning. So... And I, and, I, and I put YouTube in this category. This is going to sound absolutely crazy, but YouTube is a place where you can learn absolutely anything, right? And I would say five years ago, I didn't watch a single YouTube. I was a, a latecomer to the YouTube thing. And I was like, I don't want to sit there and watch all this nonsense. Um, but then I go on there, you know, I learned how to fix my car. I got a new tractor and I want to understand this. Or like I said, I'm into maple production. I learned resources on there. Granted, you have to watch a few things over and over to understand and get fact from fiction kind of thing. Understand this is really a solution to your problem. But YouTube has, has been a great resource for me. It's usually how I wind down. And my wife does not necessarily like that. But late at night, I'm, I'm probably watching some just calm down, watch some YouTubes. I'm learning about something different. Um, and that's a great, been a great resource. Um, just listening to other people 
you know, go through challenges that I need to overcome. <laughs> I was just talking to a friend of mine about that this weekend, how it was so much harder to learn things 20 years ago than it is now. You had to go to books, yeah. read articles. I have a friend who actually taught herself how to breed cows on YouTube. She didn't yeah. have her and her husband purchased a new dairy and they didn't have any um, kind of out away from all of the, you know, support and consultants and all that. And so she just hopped on YouTube and taught herself how to how to AI cows. So, well, I don't even like, so the side note is I don't do this anymore, but at my past house down in my basement, I had a complete hydroponic garden. Like this was an NFT system. I knew nothing about hydroponics and I was growing lettuces and different types of root vegetables and things. And I learned all of this from, from a YouTuber called MHP Gardener. And uh, Uh, yeah, yeah, so it's a wild world on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. You can learn anything anymore. (laughs) All right. And the last question we ask is what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Um, I would say those that are willing to fail. I mean, it's some sort of corny answer, but, you know, I, 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 when I look at, you know, how we push and how we innovate, um, what's the next, you know, what's the next level of, um, of, of what we do. Um, you really got to take some risks. Um, to, and I think to really propel the field forward a bit and, um, so a certain level of risk taking, a certain level of you know an, an urgency to to break the status quo kind of scenario that uh, we we get so stuck sometimes in um, the current you know the current way of to do things and um, what I try to at least teach my students is that you know we're gonna we're gonna push hard and, and some of the things some of the questions that we want to ask. Um, that we want to that we want to explore, we might not be right. Uh, it's probably a good chance we're not going to be right. It's completely fine, um, and and I think it's hard for for junior professionals to to realize that they feel like they got to get it right every time. And I was one of those people, hundred percent. When I was younger, my thirties took me a little later, maybe the most, but I felt like they had had everything right. And if I didn't get, if I had something wrong, and I did something wrong, I failed at something. God, I took it to heart. Um, but now I fail a lot. <laughs> but to me, it's like, whatever. You know, you just you live and learn. And um, it comes with age and maturity and things like that. And um, I encourage young people that are listening to, to not be so hard on themselves and um, take a degree of risk and be okay with failing. I actually just read uh, over break, I read Hidden Potential by Adam Grant. Okay. Um, and I'm reading it with a couple of my grads or my couple of my students this semester. Um, but he has a, the first chapter is all about becoming a creature of discomfort and actively seeking out ways that you get outside of your comfort zone. And what you, what you said then made me think he has actually one of his recommendations that he makes for action is to set a mistake budget. Um, so set a goal for a minimum number of mistakes you want to make in a week. Uh, because if you make mistakes, that means that you're learning and you're trying new things. So he actually recommends setting a minimum number of mistakes that he wants to do. That's great. And, and I think it's, a, I think we need to be more vocal about that. I mean, a social media is a great example where we tend to just highlight everything that's going well in our lives. Um, and then you get this, it's this fake reality that, oh, everything's so great for Gail, you know, right. um, but in, <laughs> in reality, we fail like half the time or more. And we have to really be more, I think, open and transparent about that. And it's okay. And, um, you know, we're there to probably support each other. I'll support you, Gail, and you support me. We'll, we'll get right through it. <laughs> Go team. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Right. Well, thanks, thanks, Joe. I know you have to get ready for uh, for class, so appreciate you taking the time to, to have a chat with us and to sit on the other side of the mic. It was really exciting to hear some of the stuff you've been working on. No problem. Thank you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.